Hey y'all, thank y'all for tuning in to Black Girl True Crime. I'm your host, Kay Simone, and I'm going to start this episode with a phone call that came into LAPD a little after midnight on Saturday, January 10th, 1987. So y'all, this man, he calls in and he tells dispatch that he wants to report a murder or dead body or something. Now he says he's able to provide an address and he mentions that a body was dropped out of a white and blue Dodge van. So dispatch, they're asking for his name and he says that he wants to remain anonymous. Now what was real strange was the fact that he was chuckling like, nigga, what the fuck is funny? Now, the anonymous caller, uh, he said he knew too many people and then he hung up the phone. Yeah, between 1984 and 2007, the brutalized bodies of black sex workers were found in alleys and garbage bins in South Los Angeles. Now, many of them, they have been raped and shot in the chest and others have been strangled. It took authorities 26 years to solve these murders. And for 22 of those years, the black communities were in the dark and didn't know that black women were being targeted. The, the crack epidemic in South Los Angeles, it was ripping through these black communities, making black sex workers extremely vulnerable to these attacks. So we are going to dive into the Grim Sleeper episode, major trigger warning for rape and deep human suffering, y'all. The world is fucked up. Let's talk about it. All right, y'all, I am back to get into part one of The Grim Sleeper. I first heard about this case when I saw The Grim Sleeper documentary by Nick Broomfield, and y'all can find it on YouTube. Now, what was going on is that women whose ages ranged from 15 to 43, they were found discarded like trash, and in, they were in alleys and trash bins, and almost all of the victims had suffered gunshot wounds from a .25 caliber pistol. Now, a few other other victims, they were found strangled with blunt force trauma, and almost all of the women have been sexually assaulted. The Grim Sleeper murders, they started in 1984, and through ballistics, LAPD knew that some of the murders were connected and that they were working with a serial killer. Now, what really blew my muffin cap back, goddamn, was LAPD, and that they didn't release this information until August of 2007. What's horrifying is that between the 70s and 80s, a multitude of serial killers were fucking up Los Angeles, y'all. And like you had the Hillside Stranglers, the Night Stalker, the Freeway Killer, not to be confused with the Freeway Phantom. And then there was the Southside Slayer and the Grim Sleeper potentially all operating at the same time. Many people believe that systemic racism is what allowed the Southside Slayer and the Grim Sleeper to continuously target black women. And... Basically, like, a black sex worker would be found dead, but the case would fall to the backside for another case that was taking place in a predominantly white area. South Central Los Angeles was basically a world of its own. Prior to the increase in serial killers, the crack epidemic and drugs and gang violence, there was racism. Everything after the end of segregation is just an extension of Jim Crow. Um, black people began to move to Los Angeles for work and white folk lost their damn minds. Like they really hated to see black people buying homes and owning businesses. So of course their response was burning homes and establishments and leaving burning white crosses on front lawns so black people knew who was responsible. 
The police, they would end up using millions of dollars to crack down on gang violence, but really, it was just a cover so they could continuously brutalize Black people. And I mean, people who had nothing to do with gangs, nothing to do with drugs. It was just a way for police to attack Black people for having the nerve to want better for themselves. And like, as we know, like the history of some of our worst neighborhoods it it all stems from Jim Crow, racism, white flight, and then police brutality. So the Watts the Watts riots in 1965, that was when racial tensions really came to a head and unfortunately, it did more harm than good for the economy in South Central Los Angeles. And I just mentioned this before, but it was really white flight and the criminalization of black people that crippled the South before the crack epidemic even began. And in all of these deaths, like, if you look up these victims on Google, the first thing you're going to find out is if they had any priors. It's going to tell you that they were, you know, doing sex work and that they were drug addicted. But it rarely mentions that drugs, they ran through LEPD just as bad as it did the Black community. And I'm going to detail the timeline of the Grim Sleeper killings. But basically, I'm going to leave y'all asses in the dark, just like how LEPD did South Central. So in part one, I'm going to detail, you know, the timeline, but it won't be until part two that y'all know who was responsible and how he was caught. So before I really go into deep detail, I do want to say that these women, they suffered brutal rapes. Like there is only one survivor and her story is horrific. And y'all are going to hear it in this part one. But it's really the documentaries that interviewed the friends of the Grim Sleeper that really proved that these women suffered torture, like they went through hell before being discarded in these back alleyways and inside these dumpsters. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and get into the actual first victim of the Grim Sleeper. So January 15, 1984, 21-year-old Sharon Dismuke she was found inside of an abandoned gas station located on the corner of Martin Luther King Boulevard and South San Pedro Street. An anonymous caller contacted LAPD to report her body, which was left inside of the male's bathroom next to one of the toilets. Like, God damn it, like, just next to a fucking toilet, y'all. And a rag was stuffed inside of her mouth, and she was covered by a piece of carpet. The heels of her feet were covered in grime and dirt, and that indicated that she had basically been dragged from outside of the gas station and into the bathroom without her shoes and socks. Now, autopsy reports confirmed that she had been struck in the right temple and shot twice at close range with a .25 caliber weapon. One of the bullets went through her upper left arm before it struck her chest. There is no coverage of Sharon uh, Dismuke, you will not find anything in the newspaper prior to 2016. And I think that that's really fucked up. And it goes with what everybody was saying that the news and journalists, they were not covering these deaths. So this is, as I said before, believed to be the first killing. But for the longest, authorities thought that Deborah Jackson was the first victim. Deborah Ronette Jackson, she was born March 2nd, 1956, and moved around from Rhode Island to Springfield, Massachusetts. And by the age of 19, she had three children named Martha, Jermaine, and Inyata. 
and she basically just packs everyone up to move to South Central Los Angeles to take care of her grandmother, who was reaching older age. By all accounts, Deborah was a devoted mother and a hard worker. Now, unfortunately, she declined after moving to South Central and was on the drug scene, and this resulted in the babies being taken from her custody. And the kids, they were placed in foster care, but they were known to run away to try and get back to Deborah. And of course, she would always accept them with open arms, but she had to tell them, like, okay, baby, but you got to do right by the law. So they would be sent back to the foster parents. She spoke to them daily and checked herself into rehab and had every intention of getting them back. In 1985 and at the age of 29, Deborah worked as a cocktail waitress at the Elegant Chateau nightclub and lived with her roommate, and her roommate was named Beatrice. And poor Beatrice, I'm going to tell y'all, but Beatrice really got the shit under the stick on this one. So their relationship did have strains because after rehab, Deborah began to backslide a little bit and things hit ahead when Beatrice's wallet went missing. So after this, there were talks to Deborah, you know, hey, like when my shit started to go missing, baby, you got to find another place to live. Now, the last time Beatrice saw Deborah, um, basically Beatrice dropped Deborah off with Deborah's best friend. And Beatrice was supposed to pick Deborah back up after her shift. But unfortunately, like Beatrice, she doesn't show. And so I really think that the wallet going missing was her last straw. So she drops her off and then doesn't come back to pick her up after work. During one final telephone conversation, Beatrice basically tells Deborah that her belongings would be with the next door neighbor. Four days would pass and there was not another word from Deborah. And on August 9th, 1986, Beatrice receives a phone call from Enyado's foster mother. Because like I said before, Deborah was calling these kids every day to check up on them. And so it was not like her to miss calling. Now, the next morning, Deborah was found in an alley in South Central. A carpet was used to conceal her, but she was lying against the red wooden fence. Deborah's sweater was hiked up exposing her chest and she was in a severe stage of decomp so maggots could be seen crawling out of her eyes, nostrils, and her ears. It was determined that Deborah was shot in the chest three times by a .25 caliber pistol. The shot was fired at close range and the bullets hit the left side of her chest, her heart, and then her spine. Her spinal cord was split in half and death basically would have occurred within two minutes. The medical examiner could not positively confirm if she had been raped due to severe decomposition, but it was evident that a sexual assault had occurred because her shirt was purposefully hiked up and this was done to expose her breasts and she was missing her underwear. And authorities, they didn't notify Deborah's immediate family, which I thought was fucked up, um, but they were also very quick to pin the murder on Beatrice. And that's why I said before that Beatrice, poor thing, she got the short end of the stick. Like, dealing with people who suffer from the illness of drug addiction, while I do believe we should change the way we view them, you know, having to take care of these people and having to, you know, deal with them when they're going through these Hardest parts of their life can be extremely difficult. And sometimes you got to give them back to the streets. And I feel like Beatrice, her options were limited once her shit started to go missing. And she did what she thought was best for her. You know, sometimes that is what you have to do. And it's up to the police to keep these goddamn streets safe. So basically what ends up happening is 
August 13th, Beatrice comes home from her job, right? The authorities, they are already at the crib. Like, they was waiting for Beatrice at the door to grow the hell out of her. And they made this woman feel so bad. And at one point, while they're asking her these questions, they whip out Deborah's photo of her deceased body in the alleyway. And Beatrice was flabbergasted because while they were asking her these questions, they had made no indication that Deborah had been murdered. But they did this to try and see Beatrice's reaction. Beatrice was then called down to the station for a follow-up interview, and she was told that the police were aware that she had been abusive to Deborah and owned a handgun. Y'all, to this day, there's not much information on how the police would have gotten this false-ass information. But they had stressed Beatrice to hell to the point of where she failed to polygraph test. And her fingerprints as well as samples from the bottom of her shoes were collected and placed into evidence. LAPD traumatized the shit out of this woman and left Deborah's best friend to deliver the blow to her family that she had been murdered. Eventually, other cases would take priority and Deborah's case went cold for a little while. And Deborah's family was in complete shock over her death. And let me also be very clear, these women were labeled as drug addicts and prostitutes, and the police treated them as such. And that is why these cases went unchecked, unsolved, and under-investigated for so, for so long. Now, but hey, towards the end, when the Grim Sleeper is caught, these families showed the fuck out. All of them were in attendance. So these two cases were linked by the same gun, but black women were targets in other serial murders and homicides leading up to the Grim Sleeper killings. So the Black Coalition Fighting Black Serial Murders led by Margaret Prescott was formed. When it came to the black community, the police were not keeping these communities informed y'all. 10 black women had already suffered stabbing and strangulation deaths, and these killings dated back to 1983, but the police didn't tell the community until 1985. So these black activists slammed the shit out of police and said that the only reason that these killings were going on for so long was because the victims were mostly drug addicts and poor, and these women were not getting the same justice as the victims from the other high-profile serial murders. And these prior slayings would be dubbed the South Side, the South Side Slayer Murders, but there wouldn't be success in that case until 1993. And all during this time, the Grim Sleeper killings went on. So a year later, another body is found, and it appears as if the same gun is used. Henrietta Wright was 34 when she went missing and disappeared in the middle of the night. She was born in Mississippi on August 18, 1951, to Luella McDonald and Robert Wright, and was one out of 11 children. The family moved to Los Angeles for a better life, and things were going well until Robert up and left the family. And they went from living on the better side of town to moving to South Central. And like, what an asshole, leaving one woman to care for 11 children. Like, God damn it. And now when Henrietta was 15, her mother Luella died from cervical cancer. And Henrietta moved in with her aunt. After having her first, her first son, Irvin, in 1967 with a man named Willie Bush, Henrietta moved in with him. In January 28, 1969, Willie Jr. was born. Henrietta and Willie separated some years later, and there are reports that he was horrifically abusive towards her. But, you know, one monkey didn't stop no show for Henrietta, and she thrived in her independence. She bought her own car and remained in the house that she once shared with Willie. 
and she was employed by the Los Angeles Unified School District by day, and she was a cocktail waitress at night. November 1977 is when Kamisha was born, and everyone said Henrietta was the happiest she'd ever been because she had always wanted a daughter. Unfortunately, Henrietta began to spiral after a, a house fire uprooted her and the kids, so everything was destroyed in this house fire, including the house that she had grown to love. And so the decline, once drugs came into the picture, was fast, and it was very clear that Henrietta was having a very difficult time. And during her addiction to drugs, she ended up having a baby girl named Rochelle in 1982 and another baby named Lucille in 1986. On August 12th, one week before her 35th birthday, Henrietta was found in an alley covered by papers and pillows and paint cans. Her shorts were unzipped and her shirt was hiked up, revealing her breasts. And this is basically the same thing that had happened in the previous murders. And a dirty, nasty-ass shirt was stuffed into her mouth and blood was smeared across her face. Henrietta was shot with the same .25 weapon at close range two times in her chest. And baby, her family was distraught. And it was Henrietta's niece who saw a short segment about a body found in an alley. And she didn't know it was her aunt until her mother confirmed it. January 10th, 1987. Now, this is when the police received an anonymous call about a dead body being dumped from a white and blue Dodge van. Now, the license plate, it's given. And the anonymous caller, um, basically like what I said in my intro, he gives this license plate and kind of lets off a chuckle. Like, what the fuck is funny about you seeing a dead body get dumped out of a goddamn van? But then he hangs up after declining to provide his name. And y'all gonna have to bear with me because your girl needs something to drink. I hope this don't pick up on the audio, but I I, I ain't cutting shit out. Y'all my family at this point. Mm-hmm. My bad, y'all. My bad. So, where was I? All right, now, so y'all, the officers pull up to 1346 East 56th Street. And they start to walk down the alley. And at some point, they're like, okay, ain't nothing to see here. Can't find a body. It must have been a fake call. But when they turn on their heels to exit, they're on their way out the alley. And this is when they spot a body lying face down, partially hidden from view because she was covered in garbage and cardboard boxes. Like, fuck this nigga. Like, the way he just carelessly discards these women and they're just surrounded by trash and filth. It just, it pisses me off. Now, her legs were pinned down by a vehicle's gas tank, and the upper portion of her body was inside of a plastic bag. The license plate that was provided to the police belonged to the Cosmopolitan Church, and I want to point out that the year is 1987. While investigating this van, a green hair curler was found beside it in a parking lot, and so was a half-smoked cigarette. So, so far, the body was tagged as a Jane Doe, but she had curlers in her hair, and one of them was also green. So, there was clearly a connection here. Now, the police interviewed some members of the congregation, but that led nowhere. It was determined that the person who would have called in the anonymous call, they couldn't have been, like, across the street, y'all, or, you know, from a far away distance, they had to have been right the fuck up on the back of that van because the alley didn't have any lights. 
Now, the, the police, they didn't release any information to the public and didn't release the 911 call. It is clear now that if they had, the community might have recognized the voice. So in 2007, when black activists began to voice their outrage over authorities not informing them of this fan, that is when they were told by police that they had nothing to worry about because he was only killing hookers. Yeah, baby, I, I, I would have had to be booked at that point. God damn it, we've been out here being targeted and y'all just been sitting on y'all's asses. So the prince from the Jane Doe, they belong to Barbara Bethune Ware. She was born January 8th, 1964 to Barbara White and Billy Ware. Barbara, basically to everybody who knew and loved her, she was known as Beth and she was the second born. Her mother and father split a few years after she was born. And at the age of 12, her mother, Barbara White, suffered a brain aneurysm and fell into a coma. And she only lived a week longer before passing away. And when this happened, it devastated Barbara. A lot of changes were happening, though. Like, you got to think about it. Like, this 12-year-old child, like, living her own existence, her and her mother got their own little bubble, you know, at their house. And then her mother falls into a coma and dies. And then you move in with your father and everything is just different. Everything is uprooted. And she was already starting to rebel a little bit over the fact that her father had married a woman named Diana Frederick some years prior. So we got this inconsolable 12-year-old girl who has now moved in with her father, Martin Luther King Boulevard. And basically her father, he said, Whatever the fuck you was doing over at your mama house, you can't do it here. Like, their asses were running a tight ship. But y'all, don't be confused. It was only to protect her. It wasn't to, you know, be tyrant or anything like that. But she was really inconsolable over the passing of her mother. So after this, after they tried to restrict her with curfews and put down the Bible on her, um, Barbara's mental health continuously declined. Eventually, she was expelled from school and fell out with her father and stepmother on multiple occasions. Officers were called on a couple different scenarios, and one time, Barbara got into a fight, and it was so bad that the police asked her father if she was on drugs, because she was a tiny little thing, but apparently, she beat the brakes off that lady, and and I guess they thought maybe cocaine had played a role into her super strength, which is real fucked up. Like, we got a child who's going through a rough time, goddammit. Give her the benefit of the doubt. But what ends up happening next is that Barbara moved to Texas, and that didn't quite do any good for her because she returned to Los Angeles, a new mom to a baby girl named Naomi at the age of 16. Despite the harsh realities that Barbara was facing, her parents loved her endlessly, though, and the last conversations with Barbara included a new chapter for her. She was ready to get her life back on track, and she had started to dabble in drugs at this point, and it just was not looking good for her. Now, the medical examiner determined that Barbara was shot in the chest with a .25 caliber weapon. During this time, some of these deaths were thought to have been at the hands of the Southside Slayer. Ultimately, six black men were targeting sex workers, all at the same time. And at one point, the police would think that they had their man, and then another body would drop. So Wednesday, April 15th, 26-year-old Bernita Sparks headed out to make a run to the liquor store. 
It was around 10.30 p.m. and her folks were gearing up to go to sleep, so she told them goodnight and made her way out the front door. When her family woke the next morning, she had still not returned home. Thursday, April 16th, another body was discovered inside of a dumpster. The men who discovered the body were Rigoberto Aparicio and Gustavo Padilla. Now, first, they only found a bloody shirt on the ground in front of the dumpster, and they kind of pick it up like, what the fuck is this? And then they peer into the dumpster, and then that's when they see the body that belonged to Bernita was real fucked up. Like, she literally was dumped headfirst into this dumpster. And inside the dumpster, her buttons were open, you know, exposing her breasts. And it also revealed a bullet wound that was in her chest. Dr. Erwin Golden performed her autopsy, and the same point, twenty-five caliber weapon was used to shoot her. Bernita also had several blunt force trauma injuries to her head and petechial hemorrhaging to her eyes, suggesting that she had been strangled. Like, the way nobody deserves none of this. And again, I'm not going to stop reminding y'all that these deaths, as brutal as they sound, they were reported the way that they should have been. And these families were all left extremely broken and confused, wondering what the fuck happened to their loved ones. So Halloween of 1987, Mary Lowe was out and about, and she was celebrating her friend's birthday with a woman named Diane Robinson. Now, they were partying at the Love Trap Bar located on Western Avenue. Diane last saw Mary at 1.15 a.m., and she was with two black men that they had met inside the Love Trap. Mary was never seen alive again, and her body was discovered in an alley at 8927 South Hobart Boulevard, and and this was the next morning. Now, the front of her shirt was hiked up like the others, and she was laying face down between a cinder block wall and a bush. And I do believe it was one grown man and his nine-year-old son that came upon her body. Just brutal. And now Mary didn't have on underwear and her pants were half zipped. Just like the other women, she was shot in the chest with a .25 caliber weapon. So over time, the bodies of Latricia Jefferson, Inez Warren, and Alicia Alexander were found in alleys and all three were shot with the same weapon and left in a manner that exposed different parts of their bodies. And the only known survivor is Anitra Marjet Washington. So Saturday, November 20th, 1988, Anitria, she's headed to a party at a friend's house, and she was supposed to attend this party with her friend Linda Hoover. Anitria was popular, not just because of her beauty, but she was the party, and her personality attracted people to her, and so she was always on somebody's invite list. Now, she was walking past the D&S market on 84th in Normandy when she was rounding the corner. And this is when she walked by an orange Ford Pinto. Now, the man kind of rolled down his window and he tried to speak low game. But Anitria, she kept up her pace. And then the Pinto began to slowly crawl next to her. And the way I would have noped the fuck about that situation, because, nigga, what the fuck are you doing? But she looks inside the car and she could see a neatly dressed man. And he had like a short buzz cut hair. He looked like a goddamn nerd, according to Anitria. And Anitria basically tells him like, hey, if you want to holler at me, you got to hop out the car first. 
So he steps out the car and she noticed that this man looked to be around her age, but he definitely was not her type. Now, after pressing Anitria to allow him to give her a ride, at one point he kind of makes a slick ass joke saying that this was the problem with black women. Can't nobody be nice to them. So now, if you listen into this podcast and a motherfucker says that to you, remind them of Anitria. So Anitria, she kind of studies him and noticed that, okay, he's just a slick talker. But he looked as if he was harmless. So she agreed to get in his car. The more Anitria looked around the car, though, the more she realized that getting in this car was probably not the best idea. And I say this because there was a spider web pattern on the passenger side front dash window. And that's kind of weird because it was on the passenger side. So once the car gets to moving, Anitria notices right away that they're moving in the opposite direction. But the stranger assured her that they just have to make one stop. So they stopped at a house on 81st Street and Anitria lit a cigarette while waiting for him to come back outside. Once the car started moving again, that's when there's a serious personality shift. The man called her Brenda, which was the name of another sex worker. Mind you, at this time, she was not involved with sex work. Now, after correcting him, Anitria watched as this man reaches into the driver's side door pocket and he pulls out a handgun. He gave Anitria no time to even process what the fuck was going on before he pointed the gun at her and shot her in the chest. So she tries to get out of the car, but she is very much alive, but things are kind of dimming in and out. She's losing consciousness. And in the Grim Sleeper documentary, they interview Anitria. And she basically recalls when she comes to, um, you got this motherfucker sitting there. And he said, don't touch that door, bitch, or I'll shoot you again. And Anitria was like, God damn it, you shot me, nigga. Like, she was flabbergasted. And he says, you're always dogging me out, Brenda. And there was enough time for Anitria to process that she never should have gotten in this vehicle, y'all. Like, imagine the fear. So she passes out and she wakes up to being straddled and her skirt was up by her waist and her underwear had been ripped off. It appears as if she had been raped while she was in and out of consciousness. And Anitria remembered the flash from a camera and then being pushed from the moving pinto. But I just want to highlight, Anitria is one badass bitch, okay? Because this lady walked a few blocks because she was able to recognize her surroundings and knew that her friend Linda just stayed up the street. So she makes it to Linda's house. Mind you, that is where she was originally going um, before this whole ordeal took place. But by the time Anichira makes her way, Linda and her husband had already left for the party. So she was not found until 2 a.m. the next morning. And then she was rushed to Harbor UCLA Medical Center. And the .25 caliber bullet was removed from her chest. What happened to Nitria and the connections made by ballistics never made it into the LA Times or the local news. 
and this was when the coalition hit the streets again advocating for the victims and the police kind of told them that they had to wait for the gun to match the bullets before they could proceed in the investigation and that pissed these women off so bad and rightfully so so anitria she after after she gets out of surgery she survives this whole ordeal and not only that she's able to describe the man who assaulted her and led the police right to his house because when she was in the car with him he said okay i have to make one stop he stopped at his crib and she was able to take the police right to where the grim sleeper lived this case could have been hemmed up in 1988 and anitria provided the most accurate composite sketch but they didn't release this information until 2009. And the reason that the police didn't use Anitria's statements was because they said she was unreliable. They took nothing that she said seriously and labeled her as a hooker, even though she wasn't. And the coalition was told that they didn't put out the sketch because eyewitness sketches weren't reliable. And the sketch was so goddamn spot on. And the composite sketch of the Night Stalker was provided by witnesses whom he had attacked. So I guess witness statements are reliable when the victim is white. Like, fuck out of here. So after the attempted murder of Anitria, it appeared as if the killings using the .25 weapon had stopped. And this is how the case got its name, the Grim Sleeper, because of the hiatus that went on. On December 28th, though, in 2000, and just a few days after Christmas, the body of 43-year-old Georgia Mae Thomas was found on East 57th Street. Georgia was found lying on her back in the alleyway, and she was wearing a brown leather jacket, jeans, and a blue thermal shirt. This time, no bullets were left, and only two small holes could be seen in her chest. Without ballistic evidence, though, at Georgia's case, it actually went cold. So now we're about to see these cases where... The modus operandi is still the same, but there are just different things that differ from the slayings in the 80s. And so now we come on to the murder of Princess Berthamo. And I have to give a major trigger warning because Princess was a baby, y'all. She was only 15 years old. And this murder really shook the community. So major trigger warning for child rape, child murder. So this baby lived a very short life and it was filled with tragedies from the moment that her mother abandoned her. While living with her biological father, Venus Berthamo, it was determined that she was suffering from severe torturous abuse. Princess was malnourished and covered in bruises at the age of three. And there was one event that occurred October 14th, 1989. Her father told police that she may have accidentally swallowed rubbing alcohol but police believe she may ingested cocaine. Three years old and covered in cigarette burns that were visible on her buttocks and her legs, ligature marks showed that at one point she had been hogtied with a rope and forced to stay in a closet for days on end. Like, fuck these people at the age of three years old. So that is how Princess's life is starting out. Now, Venus and his girlfriend, Germany, were arrested for child abuse and Princess was removed from the home. After this, Princess was placed with the Black family, and their names were David, Smart, and Dolores. And they loved this baby to the ends of the earth, y'all. And all this stuff had happened to her at the age of three. As she grew up, though, um, it's well, authorities and 
people who were a part of her case, they believe that the severe abuse that she suffered as a baby could potentially re um, be the reason that she was mentally delayed as a teen. And during this time that she was with the smart, she suffered from night terrors, PTSD, anxiety, and they did everything that they could to make the transition easy and give her the most stable environment that they could. Dolores died February 1997 from congestive heart failure and Princess, who was 10 at the time, never recovered from her passing. And it was one thing after another for this baby because then David's health declined after having a major heart attack. By the time Princess was 12, she was back in foster care and she had spent a decade with these people who loved her and cared for her. So Princess, she really had a very fast decline. Princess's naked body was discovered March 9th, 2002 in an alley in Inglewood. This baby was discarded next to towels covered in human feces, and she was lying on her right side and blood trailed from her nose. The medical examiner confirmed that she had been strangled due to the evidence of petechial hemorrhaging and sclera in both of her eyes. At the time of her death, Princess weighed 100 pounds and burn scars were visible on her buttocks and the backs of her legs. DNA that was, yeah, the DNA that was confirmed to be saliva was swabbed from her breasts, knees, ankles, vagina, and rectum, and it was clear that she had been sodomized and there was trauma to her rectum and blood inside of her anal cavity. Princess's cause of death was asphyxia due to strangulation, and Princess remained a Jane Doe for five months. But once her foster family became aware, they were devastated. They were devastated. Like, as I said before, like all of these families, like they showed the fuck up when it came time for these court appearances and they were devastated and they never stopped showing up for Princess in the meantime. So four more black women lost their lives leading up to 2007 and, the, and those details, y'all, they're going to be in part two. And I cannot wait to tell y'all how they caught this motherfucker and about the black men who were present during some of these rapes and murders. Because y'all, it wasn't just one person. Now, one person would end up taking the fall for all of this, but you, you'll you see. You'll see because it's very clear in the Grim Sleeper documentary that these black men were present, but they were on drugs. So that kind of altered their perception of what the fuck was going on. But still, only one person was convicted for these murders. So y'all make sure to wait for part two, which was going to drop on Wednesday. And if you fuck with me, I'd appreciate a five-star review on Apple. Y'all know y'all can find my main TikTok, which is KSMO93. The pod's TikTok is blackgirl underscore true crime. The Insta, which is growing thanks to y'all's Black Girl underscore True Crime Podcast. And you can reach me at Black Girl True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. I want to thank y'all for tuning in, and I will catch y'all on Wednesday.